Das ist Hörmaschine. Das ist die Hörmaschine. Hörmaschine 53. Hörmaschine 53. Today we wanna surf. Today we wanna see. Today we wanna travel. Today we wanna think about. We wanna listen to. Not the modern blue or that we should turn savers into investors or even saviors into investors but for sure seniors into investors we will travel to Venachi, a nice little town with a lot of computers a lot of prosec in fact and it is situated in the state of washington by the way we want to listen to one of the most powerful voices and understand how to think the world, so to say. Yeah, this and more now in Her Machine 53. Topics of news and interest. Um, we started this group after the complex fires when we realized that there was a big lack in communications um, in the community to getting the word out when the fires were happening and other um, disasters or just needs for communication between people in um, Okanagan County and the surrounding areas. Well, I live um, just outside Malat on the Okanagan River and we're kind of sandwiched in between the mountains so from where I'm at, we have a view of the, down the valley for Bichola Wisp all the way down. So when the fires came, we could watch them come down through Davis Canyon and Chilowis and up behind us. Um, and as the debris flew, it was coming right at us and we had burning debris landing in our field, on our roof everywhere we actually decided with the amount of smoke that there was and burning material we loaded up all of our chickens ducks turkeys goats into a trailer and we left 2015 came around and we again were evacuated but this time we decided to stay um, me i was too busy with the scanner too busy with the group I decided that this was more important. I was able to continue with the group and helping other people get evacuated. I posted from the car a few times when the power went out, sat out and had the car running, but एक चिराग को घिसने से जाहिर होता था बस इसके अलावा और हमें कुछ याद नहीं सही फरमाया हुजूर आली दिमाग शहंशाह ने आई वाज वेरी वेरी यंग लिसनिंग टू द स्कैनर एंड हियरिंग इट अम आई डोंट थिंक आई हैव एवर नॉट हैड अ स्कैनर इन माय हाउस होल्ड आई मीन इवन व्हेन आई लेफ्ट होम आई मीन आई हैव हैड दिस 
दिल फरेब और बहुत ही खतरनाक खौफनाक कहानी है हम अलादीन और जादू चिराग की कहानी सुनने के लिए बेहद बेचैन बेताब और पुस्ताक है जल्दी से बयां करो मल्लिका ये जादू बयां शहजाद जल्दी बयां करो When a person's central nervous system is changed by an SSRI with that medicine, they will view things differently, and they will be strangers. They look at things differently. I have a chemical up here that changes me. I think differently. For me, it was like walking around like this for my whole life, and really not knowing that I was nearsighted. I mean, really. I mean, no one had ever offered me glasses, and then all of a sudden, here comes uh, somebody that says, "Okay, now try these on. Try this Prozac on." And I tried it on, and for the first time in my life, I went, "Whoa! Is this the way reality really is?" <laughs> जादूगर सिंगालू जुमला से इंसान ही नहीं उस जंगल के बड़े से बड़े खौफनाक जानवर खूंखार तरिंदे और जहरीले सांप तक डरकर भागते थे I don't know honestly, but I know. Yes, I know. I'm done for. Try not to talk. It's better if you rest. But what's the point of keeping my strength? I'm not getting any better by not talking. The charts, the lines on the charts show that I'm getting better. But I know I'm not. All right. Let's talk. What do you want to talk about? I suppose few nurses are accustomed to having dying people tell you their life history. <laughs> Don't worry. I'm not going to tell you anything. Why not? Because in my life there's nothing to tell. Oh, everybody has something to say. I'm 70 years old, nurse. Seventy years, and maybe it's possible that in all that time, most of the good things could take four or five hours of actual living. Four or five hours—that's something. Some people don't even have that. <laughs> you know something? I once read—I don't know where—that our whole world. Is no more than a place filled with dead people who think they are living. <laughs> Can you imagine big cities full of dead people, walking dead, work, suffer, and love, and think they are living? <laughs> I don't recall. What it referred to in this book, where I read this, you understand what I mean, don't you? Yes, I understand. It wasn't what was real. Uh, it was
facts driving anything. It was how you could turn those facts or twist the facts or even make up the facts to make your opponent look bad. So perception management became a, 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 a device and the facts could be twisted. Anything could be anything. Reality becomes simply something to play with to achieve that end. Reality is not important in this context. Reality is simply something that you handle. Before completing to BlackRock Global Funds application form, please reattackuate and prospectus. When your application form is submitted, other information such as a certified form of identification and completion of anti-money laundering documentation may be required. Where were you in the building and where was the explosion? But a system that could anticipate the future and keep society stable was already being built, pieced together from all kinds of different and sometimes surprising sources, all of them outside politics. One part of it was taking shape in a tiny town in the far northwest of the United States, called East Wenatchee. It was a giant computer whose job was to make the future predictable. The man building was a banker called Larry Finch. Back in 1986, Mr. Fink's career had collapsed. He lost $100 million in a deal and had been sacked. He became determined it wouldn't happen again. Fink started a company called Blackwell. There's a computer he called a ladder. It is housed in a series of large sheds in the apple orchards outside Wenatchee. Fink's aim was to use the computer to predict with certainty what the risk of any deal or investment was going to be. The computer constantly monitors the world, and it takes things that it sees happening and then compares them to events in the past. It can do this because it has in its memory a vast history of the past 50 years. Not just financial, but all kinds of events. Out of the millions and millions of correlations, the computer then spots possible disasters, possible dangers lying in the future, and moves the investments to avoid any radical change and keep the system stable. <laughs> 
Aladdin has proved to be incredibly successful. The assets it guides and controls now amount to $15 trillion, which is 7% of the world's total wealth. Aladdin works with your insurance company and bills them directly, eliminating hassle for you and helping you get back to your life faster. Since 1994, we have serviced the whole world with water damage restoration, mold removal, sewage extraction, smoke and fire damage restoration and flood cleanup services 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, with instantaneous response, prompt action, Years of experience and a highly proficient staff, we are qualified to help recover and restore your property. We also offer contents restoration and have a large storage facility to safely house your belongings. Most often, restoring contents is less costly than replacing them. As professional restorers, our job is to minimize the damage by prompt and thorough action that will bring your contents and structure as close to pre-flooding condition as is humanly possible. With our ultra-modern techniques, it is possible to restore water-damaged carpets, contents and structural materials to pre-flood appearance or better, because our professional restorers will leave the area freshly cleaned as well as dry. Upon entering your home or business, we will use professional moisture detection equipment to evaluate and document the psychrometric conditions inside and outside the building and the moisture content of materials in affected and unaffected areas. We will evaluate and document the source and the time of the water intrusion, visible deterioration, pre-existing damage and microbial growth. We will establish drying goals for affected building materials and contents near the beginning of the restoration process. It's a new world. A world that is shifting and changing faster than ever before. It's not just the velocity of the change, it's the magnitude of it. Shock upon shock upon shock. Political, social, cultural, but perhaps most of all, financial. The old ways of investing aren't working anymore, and people don't know what to do or where to look for leadership. The one question that's on everyone's minds is, so what do I do with my money? For a quarter century, one company has held the belief that the world of finance can be made more knowable. 
Where others see complexity, we find opportunity. In vast oceans of data, we seek the insight that can change everything. We uncover the new risks lurking in the markets and help our clients do the same. BlackRock was built for these times. It's why we've been called in by governments and corporations time and again to bring clarity and order when no one else could. This new world is full of possibilities, but for us, it comes with great responsibility. We help the world's largest pension funds and insurance companies keep their promises. So the people who are always there for us will always have the retirements there for them. We invest for parents, for grandparents. They might as well be our parents. And we owe it to each of them to help answer the questions they're facing in this new world. When will I be able to retire? Will I have enough for my children's education? Will I outlive my savings? We are BlackRock. Together we will provide the answers that investors need to move forward. We will leave no stone unturned. We will walk in our client's shoes. We will go where we can do the most good. BlackRock. <laughs> Der Fonds investiert einen erheblichen Vermögensanteil, der auf andere Währungen lautet. Daher beeinträchtigen Änderungen des betreffenden Wechselkurses den Wert der Anlageanleger, die in diesen Fonds investieren, sollten wissen, dass Kapitalwachstum keine Priorität darstellt und Werteschwankungen unterliegen können und die Höhe der Erträge bisweilen variieren kann und nicht garantiert ist. यही जमीन तुमसे किन किन कर बदले लेगी और तुम्हारी लाश को कस कस कर निचोड़ेगी मिट्टी मिट्टी में मिल जाएगी सिर्फ दास्तानों में तेरा गुरूर रह जाएगा मैं तुझे आगाह कर रही हूँ कि बेइंतहा दौलत और बेइंतहा ताकत के लिए उस जादुई चराग का ख्याल अपने दिल से निकाल दे कई जादूगरों की जिंदगी के चराग उस चराग को हासिल करने की कोशिश में गुल हो गए Today is going to be one heck of a day. Today I'm going to be in New York, London, San Francisco, and Hong Kong. Today I'm going to deliver 1.8 million reports, execute 25,000 trades, and avert 3,000 disasters. I'm going to monitor interest rates in Europe, silver prices in Asia, droughts in the Midwest. I'm going to witness 4 billion shares change hands on the New York Stock Exchange and record the effects on 14 trillion in assets across 20,000 portfolios. I am Aladdin. I am Aladdin. And today, I'll find the numbers behind the numbers. I am Aladdin. I am Aladdin, and I will get the data right. I will know what I know. And I'll know it everywhere, at once. Every screen, in every office. I am Aladdin. 
compile 25 million lines of code. Written by hundreds of people. Across two decades. I'm smarter than any algorithm. More powerful than any processor. Because I am Aladdin. Because I am Aladdin. A new kind of intelligence. For a new world of investing. Collective intelligence. Collective intelligence. Collective intelligence. The intelligence of over 3,000 analysts. Of 19,000 users. And over 50 of the world's largest financial institutions. All sharing one set of data on one system. A central nervous system. Linking portfolio managers. To compliance officers. The executive suite. To the trading floor. Connecting me. To me. And me. Instantly. Intelligence that's part people, part technology, part Wall Street, part Silicon Valley. Making me more than the sum of my bots. Giving me the power to do amazing things. I am Aladdin. And with every input, I get better. Move faster. Work smarter. See clearer. Make better decisions. And as I do, so does everyone else. I believe all of us, all of us, all of us, are smarter than any of us. And as the world continues to grow more complex, our collective intelligence, collective intelligence, collective intelligence will grow alongside it. So that tomorrow, we'll do more than we did today. I am Aladdin. And I am a genius. What the heck is that? What is it doing? What is going on?
Bond market liquidity has been a big focus of investors, particularly since the crisis has instituted a number of significant changes in the uh, infrastructure underlying bond markets. What investors need to consider is that today, relative to in the past, bond market liquidity means a price for liquidity. That can affect investors' returns, particularly if they're looking to access liquidity, that is, transform a bond investment back into cash at an inopportune time, particularly when anybody else or everybody else wants to do that. Factoring into your investment considerations of your liquidity needs is even more important in today's bond market universe. And understanding the bond market liquidity underlying your allocations is equally critically important. When investing in bond mutual funds, it's important to note that there is a wide degree of dispersion of liquidity and liquidity risk and strategies employed by your managers. Therefore, it's incumbent upon investors to understand the liquidity risk, the liquidity strategies, and the liquidity risk management that these managers employ. ताइचिंग मस्जिद के पीछे सराय कलंदर पक्ष के इलाके में से गुजरकर नखलिस्तान नामी शहर में रहता है। खूब, खूब इल्म है तुम्हारा, आये सितारा शनास परी। So let me talk about um, my vision of the world and, and where I see it. Um, what I'd like to just. Aladdin! Aladdin! And it's. Couldn't be more important today because and relevant today, given how interconnected the world is and how we are so connected globally. As the daily headlines on European debt makes abundantly clear, the economic destinies of people across the globe are inextricably linked. It is no wonder that for all the record uh, recent hopeful signs of economic recovery and rebounding markets, there's still a gnawing sense out there that things are just not right. Every CEO I talk to, and I talk to quite a few worldwide, are, are telling me virtually the same thing, that business is actually a little better than they planned. It's, it's it actually starting to uh, move the dial. But they then cautionally say, but things just don't feel right. They feel, in some respects, really bad. So lacking this confidence, in the future, they're continuing to build their cash even as earnings improve. And from kitchen tables to trading floors to street protests in Athens, London, or Manhattan, people are angry, they're frustrated, they're confused. They're worried about stagnant incomes 
and, of course, eroding savings. The worry that government promises of secured retirement are simply impossible to meet. And they're looking for leadership, and they're looking for answers. Fundamentally, a broad crisis of confidence is paralyzing our ability to make long-term decisions. Much of the problem is our inability to look beyond the latest headlines as they change minute by minute with every blog or every website. Whether it's about the Greek debt or whether it's about gasoline prices, in today's wired world, people are bombarded with so much information and news. Even if much of the news is good, it's very hard to interpret the good from the bad. It's affecting the business decisions uh, from everyone, from the corner office to the corner drugstore, and having a deeply unsettling effect on the markets with dramatic swings in trading. It's this shortening time horizon not just for investors, but for politicians and businessmen. This fixation on the short term is also blinding society to powerful forces to, in reshaping the world. This new world, if you will, is being defined by three far-reaching and closely intertwined trends that are disrupting markets, economies, and many sectors of society. The most, swe most sweeping, yet most overlooked, is the great aging. According to the United Nations, the over 60 age group will tr roughly triple to in size to 2 billion people in the next 40 years, growing more than twice the rate of the rest of the population. This worldwide phenomenon is already placing major strains in the entire global system. Living longer should be a blessing but many older people are now afraid about living their savings. In the United States alone, the combined underfunding of Social Security and Medicare over the next 75 years exceeds a shortfall of $40 uh, trillion, according to the program actuaries. U.S. pension funds uh, at year-end were underfunded by an average of 33%, according to BlackRock. Also, according to BlackRock, the average defined contribution plan is underfunded by over 40%, so even worse than defined benefit plan. And around the world, we're facing an unprecedented simultaneous withdrawal of both financial and human capital from the system. Let's just look at Japan. It's long had one of the world's highest savings rates, which helped fund our government and many other governments' deficits around the globe. But it also has one of the world's oldest populations. But it also has one of the, uh, uh, so Japan will soon shift from a net saver to a net seller of assets. This will have a profound impact on, on, the, on the world and on government deficits. Unfortunately, this great aging coincides with a great deleveraging. The financial and corporate sector and households across the developed world continue to reduce debt and de-risk in the wake of the financial crisis. It will shape investment, returns, and spending for years to come. As the New York Times pointed out last week, anxiety about assuming long-term obligations is shifting in the United States from a nation of homeowners to a nation of renters, even as we witness rising rent prices and 
and affordability for housing at uh, almost at a record level. And the global deleveraging is being compounded as governments around the world pursue austerity plans to address deficit spending. Governments won't be a source of job growth going forward as it has been in, in, uh, for many years in the United States. So job creation will require a much more meaningful partnership between government and business. And further complicating these challenges is the great migration of the engines of global growth to the emerging markets. Over time, this shift of economic opportunity will help create a more stable world, but for now, it's fueling much more global anxiety. It's driving global disparity in income on both ends of that migration. Those adept at navigating a global economy have adopted and even benefited, while many others have been left behind. So we shouldn't be surprised by the social unrest it caused whether it's occupied Wall Street or the Arab Spring, with its powerful economic undercurrents. To sum it all up, we're in a perfect storm right now. Aging population, deleveraging economies, shifting jobs, income inequality wrapped up in low growth and low yields, just when people need better returns and a better economic opportunity. So in the midst of the perfect storm, with everyone focused on the next change of the prevailing winds, with confidence so scarce and volatility so broad, I get asked the same question wherever I am. I could be in Abu Dhabi, I could be in Beijing, Sao Paulo, Zurich, or right here in Manhattan. The question is simple, what do I do with my money? Whether it comes from an individual, a corporation, or a pension fund? My answer is all the same. You need to get off the sidelines and get your money working again. It's the only way individuals can achieve their financial objectives, the only way corporations will achieve growth, the only way pension funds will meet their commitments, and the only way governments can address the great public policy challenges we face. Whether it's funding retirement, supporting education, or rebuilding our infrastructure, all of that is really only doable if we reignite growth. So to meet our global challenges in this new world, we must at every level turn savers into investors. Worry about the future is driving up short-term savings. The FDIC data shows that bank deposits hit $10 trillion at, the, at year end, up from $6 trillion in 2004. They grew three times faster in the first nine months of 2011 than they did in 2010. In China, despite strong growth, investors are keeping far too much of their savings in short-term deposits. And if this trend continues, there'll be a need from, the, from other sectors to finance growth. In the same way, non-financial companies in the S&P 500 held more than $1 trillion in cash as of the fourth quarter of last year, according to Standard & Poor's. This is the highest percentage of all assets since the 1960s. <clears throat> For CEOs sitting on much cash, this will ultimately push down their P.E. ratios. So what do we do? How do we get all the money working in? How do we reignite long-term investment and growth? First, we must help investors adapt to the new world. 
It's in everyone's interest to bolster confidence in long-term investments. But I'll be the first to say that the asset management industry has not done a great job in helping investors take a long-term view. We have to step up to offer guidance and provide answers. To finance longer lifespans, we must convince individuals to start investing now for the long term. Their longevity should be an asset that could be levered, not a curse. They must understand that there's a cost of sitting in cash. No one talks about that cost. They talk about the cost of volatility. They talk about the cost of making the wrong short-term decision. But no one is talking about the cost of inaction. We must understand that sitting in cash, even in low inflation, we need to focus on this for individuals and for society. People unable to afford retirement will continue to work longer, shifting economic opportunities for the next generation, pushing unemployment rates for younger workers even higher than they are today. We need to educate investors about conforming, uh, uh, confronting the gr- growing gap between needs and resources for retirement. In particular, companies have a moral responsibility to educate their employees. Shifting from a defined benefit plan to a defined contribution plan doesn't absolve them of that responsibility. That means getting investors beyond a now inadequate 60-40 portfolio mix of stocks and bonds. I personally have said many times I'd be 100% in equities. That fits my risk profile and my views of the world. Though obviously it's not appropriate for everyone. Most investors need a more diversified portfolio, but virtually every investor has to find ways to achieve a better return than they'll get in cash or government bond for the foreseeable future. Possibilities include looking at new sources of income like dividend-paying stocks, higher-yielding corporate bonds, using both passive and active strategies, uh, and alternative investments which are now becoming more widely available for individuals. At the institutional level, we need to help public and private pension funds face up to the adjustments necessary to meet their obligations to their members, such as revisiting outdated, over-restricted investment guidelines. The financial community and government can help also help turn savers into investors by finding consensus on practical regulation that increases confidence in our markets. With Basel III, banks will be even more conservative in their lending and will be even more reliant on the capital markets in the future. So it's vital that the financial community and governments find consensus on practical regulation that promotes confidence in our markets. For example, a new regulation last month by the CFTC to protect the collateral that customers post when when centrally clearing over-the-counter derivatives will promote greater confidence in these markets. In the coming months, I also hope that similar protections will be welcomed for uh, future tradings. We need financial products and disclosure that ensure individual investors know what they are buying, including real risk uh, and real costs. We believe, for example, that in the fast-growing ETF sector, better labeling will boost investor confidence. We need a tax structure that encourages long-term growth, including a capital gains tax regime that rewards investments over multiple years. The holding period for an investment to qualify for long-term capital gains tax treatment should be extended to three years from the current 12 months, 
and the rate should decline the longer one holds that investment. Finally, governments, too, need to take a longer-term investment perspective. Just as individuals and institutions should understand that they cannot count on returns in one quarter or one year, governments should consider investments that may not deliver returns for years. We need government leaders willing to rise above partisanship and make forward-looking investments in crumbling infrastructure and basic research. And probably the most important long-term investment society can make is in education. It's an antidote to today's short-term preoccupation, a means to filter the day's headlines and see longer-term policies, and to adapt to the competitive demands of the information age, where even unskilled positions today require technology competence. The transformational challenges and the resulting crisis of confidence that we face as a global society are daunting, but we are better equipped than at any time in our history to respond. After all, we possess unparalleled knowledge and experience, financial and planning tools, technology and analytics, and we are connected across the world in ways that were just uh, unimaginable a very short period ago. In this new world, we can help build, rebuild confidence. We could be, rebuild confidence in getting the markets to moving again, restoring growth, and turning short-term savers into long-term investors. It is our responsibility as leaders of business, finance, and government. All of us must come to this, come to this answer, and all of us must come to the call right now. Thank you. Thanks, Larry. You made great points in terms of broad issues that we're all living through and facing. And um, before we get into sort of what that means to us and how to actually approach our financial lives as a result of the changes that we're seeing, let's drill down on a couple of those broad issues that you just mentioned. And one of them, of course, is the government deleveraging, governments around the world deleveraging. Um, this morning, of course, we did get news from the European Central Bank that the ECB is putting forth another lending facility for the European banks, the LTRO. Give us your take on the impact of that. Is this going to make a big difference in Europe? In the short run, I think it's absolving much of the problems. <clears throat> there are many facets that are going on in Europe. The crisis that we saw last fall was a liquidity crisis. You had the regulators telling banks that they have to conform to Basel II by this summer, and then you have the pending Basel III, which will be out in 2018 when they had it. And on top of that, you had failing um, um, markets. Markets were not able to respond. And actually, it was the banking system that was selling assets. And so you had a deterioration of all the sovereign credits that uh, really jeopardized the, the stability of the, East, uh, of, of the Euro community. You had yields over 6% for Spain and, and, um, and Italy. This, and so it was a liquidity crisis that we experienced in, in Europe, not unlike the liquidity crisis we experienced in the United States. Pro by providing this liquidity um, uh, um, uh, facility, it stabilizes um, liquidity um, 
and you're, you just don't see the pressure from the banking community selling. Much of the assets that bank owns are two, three-year maturity. So by providing this lending facility, those banks don't have to sell. They're going to see those loans slowly roll off. And so it does absolve much of the problems in the short run. But I think most importantly, by absolving the liquidity crisis of Europe, it is now giving the new governments of Greece, the new governments of Italy, the new governments of Spain, time to fix their political situation, their economic situation. So in Italy and Spain specifically, you have two new governments who have now publicly stated, we're going to manage our deficits accordingly, we're going to have these austerity plans. That's only part one. Part two, we need growth. If we don't have growth in Europe in three years, this thing all falls apart again. So it, it, this is not a this is not a fix, it's, but it's a stability to give governments time uh, to work their problems into a more favorable position. I feel like part of the reason that uh, individuals as well as corporations have been sitting on cash is because Europe has been a wild card, and we're really not sure how that spills over onto the United States. So as a follow-up, are you more comfortable today that the, that the European upset is less likely to spiral onto the United States and impact this economy negatively? Well, I think for 2012, uh, I, I think we are going to see um, uh, a stable Europe. Even with Greece, I mean, uh, you know, I would not be surprised to see some um, uh, event that may um, force some change in the relationship between Greece and Europe. Um, there may be some evidence of default sometime in the future, but I believe that result is going to be less problematic. I think Europe has been very successful in stabilizing and firewalling the rest of Europe. Um, and therefore, if there was that event, and I'm not saying there will be, but if there is that type of event, I think Europe even will be a more stable place. So translating that back to, to our shores, I don't think Europe is going to be a cause of concern for our economy. I think the only cause for our economy would be if through these facilities and uh, could we see a, a devalued euro. Now the euro has actually rallied because people are less frightened of the future of, of Europe. But if we had a euro that was pushed down to 115 to pick a number, that would have serious implications for our job growth. I mean, we benefited mightily as a country of a, having a weakened currency. And so I, I guess I'm not worried about, I'm not worried about failure of Europe in 2012. I'm worried about success of Europe in 2012 and what does that mean for our shores. Out 2014, though, if Europe does not find sources of growth, of economic growth, then we have a much more serious problem ahead of us because, you know, they already did these lending facilities, and if we still, after a couple of years' time, cannot find a mechanism for GDP growth, then these countries' ability to, you know, to afford these deficits become more problematic. And so... We have two years in front of us to see if Europe can stabilize its future. 
And under the umbrella of, okay, what does this mean to me now and what do I do now with my money, you mentioned longevity. You know, it, it seems like every time we discuss longevity, I was having a conversation with someone in healthcare recently, and he said, you know, Maria, we're living longer. I mean, we are really facing a crisis. And I said, whoa, 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 stop right there. We're facing a crisis. Listen to what you just said. We're living longer. We're living longer. This should be a positive, not a crisis. Why do you point to that as one of the overall big issues that we face today, longevity? I think we, we focus way too much on the directions of a market every day. And as I said, people are frightened of that, uh, uh, you know, of what that market behavior will do. And so we're, we're seeing just many people are frozen. No one is asking the question, what is that cost of doing nothing? I, have no, I don't hear any blog or news station or, or newspaper that talks about the cost of doing nothing. It is enormous a cost, and if you're a 35 or 40-year-old and still haven't been preparing for your retirement in any way, the, each year goes by, the deficit or the shortfall that you're going to have is, is huge. And, and so we are going to live longer. We have, we have been able to, a lot of sciences, we've turned a lot of deadly diseases into chronic diseases. Um, you know, if you if you are a couple uh, in fairly good health in your 60s, the statistical probability one of you is going to live to 92 now. And if, you know, you're going to need a, an enormous reservoir of savings and uh, to achieve the lifestyle or the standard of living that you're looking for. So, I think we need to have a call of you know call to arms right now that we need to focus on these costs and. We got to do it at the individual level so it doesn't become a bigger federal burden or state burden. Obviously, it is still remains to be a big state burden, but I think it's a responsibility for every state fund, every corporate plan to help educate their workers, and I'm talking, and I mean part-time workers and full-time workers about what it takes to build the necessary nest egg. You're not going to be able to rely totally on Social Security. Uh, and so it's going to have to be through these private means. Other countries in the world have adapted some very sensible retirement plans. Uh, uh, and in those countries, they've addressed these issues, like Chile and, our, and Australia, where there are sensible plans in which um, uh, people have to save for retirement. Are you surprised that uh, ever since the U.S. got downgraded, all this money has gone into treasuries? No, because the treasury is a... Is a, is a is a benchmark, you know. So, to, to, if you think about a swimming pool and the volume of water in a swimming pool, and that the treasury, uh, the treasury component of your of of a portfolio represents, let's say, thirty percent of that volume of water, and I'm talking about the volume of water in degrees of risk. And so we got downgraded, and so definitionally now that volume of water of risk increased. So, so treasuries went from that 25% volume of water to 30% of risk because it was downgraded. So you needed to sell other things to, if you wanted to keep your risk appetite the same. And so... You didn't have to sell treasuries. You, you, if you wanted to keep your risk appetite the same, that means you had to sell other things, so treasuries actually did fine.
Give us your sense of these secular shifts going on in the global economy right now. You're traveling all over the world. We're hearing a lot about Latin America, particularly Brazil and, and the vibrancy there. We're hearing a lot about, of course, the growth in China, even if it has slowed down. What's your sense? How significant is the global slowdown, China having been the engine of growth for the world, and what's going on right now in Latin America uh, or other places you'd like to mention? Well, I think Latin America experienced a slowdown in the third quarter. You saw Brazil going from a 5-ish percent GDP in the first quarter of last year to zero. Um, and I think in the fourth quarter it started turning back up. Um, but we, we've seen a slowdown uh, throughout the world. I don't believe China is slowing down in 2012. I know I'm a, a minority in it. I, I personally believe the... Um, um, the present leadership of China have been very successful. I can't imagine them wanting to hand off the economy to the new leadership with the economy in a soft landing or hard landing. It, it, it doesn't seem that, you know, you're not going to want to hand off after having such a great tenure success. So I believe you're, and you're starting to see evidence of their, their uh, easing quite a bit to assure that the economy grows at eight and a half plus for 2012. Uh, in the last few weeks, you've seen um, governments encouraging banks to roll over debt. And you've seen last, I think it was last week, the governments uh, uh, reduced the reserve requirements in China. So they're actually easing now to re-stimulate the economy. So you're, you're worried, one of your big concerns is the fact that we are sitting on such low interest-bearing money and we're not putting our money to work. How are you putting your money to work and what are you hearing from the many deep-pocketed investors that you're speaking all around the world uh, in terms of how they're, they're getting return? Well, we're, we're seeing some very large flows. So we are starting to see some money being put to work. This is obviously why we've had this rally year-to-date uh, uh, where the NASDAQ's up 15%, the S&P's up 9 most global markets are up 9%. So you're, you're, you're seeing money starting to be put to work. Um, uh, and you're seeing the flows are in areas like high yield. You've seen huge flows, like record flows in the high yield funds year-to-date. Uh, you're seeing record flows into dividend-oriented stuff. So I think investors are starting to look at these opportunities. Um, we're seeing, um, but, but overall there's still this sense of confusion. Um, there is still a huge allocation in cash, huge allocation in bonds. So I just think on the margin people are putting the money to work. Um, we're, seeing a, uh, we're seeing huge reallocation into alternatives which actually gives me a, a more constructive view in equities as more money runs away from equities um, in, in, in some areas uh, into alternatives. So I, uh, it really, uh, investors worldwide are asking the same question, what should I do? And depending on their risk appetite, depending on their liability needs, you're seeing, you're seeing behavior that, that uh, that is, it's not a behavior that you could say is uniform. It's individual behavior depending on the needs of each individual investor. So you think that is appropriate to be looking at dividend payers, to be looking at these high corporate bonds? Is that what you believe is appropriate? Yeah, I mean, if you let's talk about Verizon, a great New York-based company. Pays a 530 dividend. Their 10-year debt is 3.5%, three, three, three and 3 quarters. Um, 
even uh, let's talk about a bank that everyone was worried about only five months ago, Santander. Um, big in the United States, big in South America, big in, New, uh, in, in Great Britain, and obviously the largest bank in, in Spain. It's paying a 9% dividend. You think that'll stay like that? Um, 9%? Yeah, I do. Well, no, it's going to get, uh, I assume the stock price will rally and the dividend price, the dividend will be less. But, but I just think there's some great opportunities where you can buy um, stocks that are paying you a dividend that is far more rewarding than owning, you know, 10-year U.S. Treasuries at 194. I, I want you to expand, expand on one thing you said in your, in your remarks, and that was about Japan. Uh, you said we're about to see the, uh, the Japanese become, go from net savers to net sellers of assets. What's the impact? What are you expecting? Well, first of all, it's just age. You know, it's been a great society of savers. Um, and over the next 10 years, they're going to be retiring, and they're going to have to start spending that retirement. And it's just pure math. Uh, and it, 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 this should be a wake-up call. We have time. But it should be a wake up in our country about uh, making sure that we are navigating our deficits. Uh, I think most recent statistics will say that the ja Japan is the second largest foreign owner of our debt. And it's just pure math that will tell you that ultimately these, this nation of savers will have to be more, uh, more uh, spending that savings and that will reduce their their ownership of U.S. Treasury. So it's a, it should just be a long-term wake-up call, and we should be prepared for it. This is not a train wreck. It will be a train wreck if we don't prepare for it. And amidst all of this, we are also sort of questioning and debating the regulatory environment. Yep. Um, you mentioned in your remarks the tax structure and uh, some changes that uh, are, are needed there. You mentioned Basel III. Um, give us your sense of the regulatory environment, how it may change, and do you believe that the current system is one of the reasons that companies are sitting on cash and unwilling <clears throat> to pick up the hiring pace? Um, let me answer the latter part first. I, I think... Um, I think most CEOs want to put that money to work. They know keeping all that money in cash drags down earnings. These are rational men and women who are running our companies. They're basically saying, I, you know, I know I'm dragging down my earnings by sitting, keeping all that money in cash, but I'm not confident of putting that money to work, and therefore I'm going to drag down my earnings with all this money in cash. We need to find a way, and it's, I don't think it's Basel III, which I'll talk about. We, we, we need to either, um, we need to build that confidence that spending that money is a better return on, on their investment than earning zero, that spending that money is better for their careers we have to all remember the average CEO in America has a term of five years. And so a lot of times when you're building, doing large capital spending projects, it's a drag during their tenure, and the results may not be achieved until someone else's tenure. 
so you have to feel very confident that spending that money with these short horizons, so we, you know, I didn't say in my speech, but we should also understand the horizons of leadership is shortening now too, um, and it, which has an impact on how you, you spend your money. Basel III is just, you know, to me, Basel III is no different than Dodd-Frank. It is society saying uh, our banking system was too risky. We need to have buffers so governments don't have to stand in, in between the failure of a bank and society. Um, there's cost associated with that. So um, the men and women who run banks worldwide, they're rational people. Their capital has gone up. Therefore, their cost... Their, their need to make a return on equity has to go up because they have more equity capital. Um, and so by definition, they're going to have to charge more for their services. So that means all of us, all the pension funds, all the investors, we have an added cost. So, the, so if we don't use our capital markets and enlarge our capital markets, you know, the banks are going to charge you more for their services to make the appropriate return on equity that shareholders demand. And that's what, that's what society wanted with Basel III. That's what society wanted with uh, Dodd-Frank. And so this is, so for us to reduce those added costs, we need to have a more fulsome global capital markets uh, so corporations can fund um, and, and, and governments can fund and grow. Are you expecting the Volcker Rule to be implemented in July? <laughs> I think some form of the Volcker Rule uh, will be implemented. I think the Volcker Rule um, has some holes in it. Um, we are not in support of it. We, we sent the letter as a firm. I, it's very hard for me to understand how to navigate the Volcker rule. What is proprietary trading? What is flow trading? It's going to be very definitional. But I do believe the Volcker rule gives the Federal Reserve a lot of latitude. And so I do believe the Volcker rule will be effective in July. I, we won't know how it's going to be manifested by the Federal Reserve. How will they interpret flow trading versus proprietary. So if a, a securities firm, a bank, buys a bond from BlackRock or, and they can't readily sell it, but they sell another instrument to hedge it, definitionally, will that be called flow trading? Or will definitionally, will that now be called proprietary trading, therefore it's an illegal action? And so it's going to be up to a huge amount of interpretation and this is why it's so confusing, and this is why I think it's so debatable, because it's very, you know, it's very hard to understand how will the Federal Reserve navigate this. And you're, and you're saying, look, you need to be active and not passive, and you need to control your money and make your money work for you because the forces around us are still in place, whether it be this uncertainty around regulation, whether it be these low-yield environments, whether it be the, the pressures from longevity or, or whatever else. So tell us your plan in terms of navigating all of these issues in a straightforward way. What are you doing as a, the largest asset manager today? What I try to tell my, all our investors at BlackRock is, one, try to filter out all the noise. So we are going to have more regulation of some sort. We're going to have more 
uncertainty. We're going to have issues around Europe or China. We're going to have elections in France in May, which will have pronounced impact on where Europe goes. We're going to have elections here in this country. So we have all these different issues. But inaction is just the wrong decision. And as I said earlier, the sooner you start putting that money to work to earn 5 6 7% returns, um, the sooner you start navigating a horizon beyond 10 years for retirement. You can't focus on the minute. You can't focus on the noise. Now, I'm not trying to suggest we could have, we, we, you know, we may have the market fall back another, you know, back to where it was at the beginning of the year. So I'm not trying to suggest when or where the entry level is. But the longer you have a view over a long horizon to meet a target, and this is really critical, if the longer you have this view and a need, so if earning 5% is the right amount of return you need to get to your nest egg that you need, it really doesn't matter your entry level. And so I'm trying to get around of day trading, trying to getting around the notion of, of, of when should I jump in. Um, the markets are going to move up and down. Don't time the market. Yeah, and, and yet, you know, we have, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people talking about market timing and when to get in and when to get out. And that, to me, is the noise that we have to remove. We have to ask ourselves each individually, each company, what is right for you? What do you need? Some person who has a lower standard, uh, standard of living need may only need a 4% return. I could live with that $1,200 a month of monthly income. I could live very successfully. Another person would say, gosh, I need 3000 a month or 4000 a month. And so you have to work backwards. Now, obviously, inflation will erode that future value, and so you have to add some type of inflation quotient in there. But I really do believe we need to start asking these easier questions about what you believe you need to have the standard of living you need to. And... And stop focusing on the noise. The noise is confusing, and in most cases, the noise, in my opinion, is he a healer. The noise is not should not be considered destabilizing. The, the noise in our democratic society creates movement, and most of the time, the noise actually resolves most problems. And there's a lot of and then a lot of noise out there. We're going to open it up to the floor. We want to hear from, from our members. But before I do that, the NASDAQ being up 15% and the 9% on, on, on most major averages, is that appropriate in your view given the economic backdrop in the United States? Well, if you just answer the, in the if you put it in the context of where we have in the last two years, it's, it's, we've had so much de-risking going on that you're just seeing now people going back into the market. Let me just say one last point about why I think it is appropriate. Um, because of the credit crisis, most financial institutions have shortened up the maturity of their assets. Most people don't talk about this, but at the BlackRock Investment Institute, we calculated insurance companies have $600 billion of purchasing power this year. That means they have $600 billion of assets that are rolling over. 
I'm not even talking about the banks. So you add up just because of the shortened duration of portfolios and the rollover of insurance companies, the rollover of banks that need to put money to work, on top of all the cash that's sitting in, in corporations, all the other cash that's sitting around, you know, I still believe the marketplaces have a lot more movement up, upward. And, and also, I believe this is what answers the question why rates are staying so low. Because the amount of money that's sitting there is so enormous. So if you add up this continuation of deleveraging that's happening in our, in our country, even with the federal deficits, we're going to have $200 billion less outstanding debt as a nation. Last year, we had $300 billion less debt. So we are seeing this deleveraging happening as a society. At the same, you know, so at the private level, we're seeing a huge deleveraging as the public sector deficits are $1.2 trillion. So even with this $1.2 trillion deficit, we are seeing less outstanding debt as a society. So you factor in the less outstanding debt as a society, coupled with the short duration of maturities at banks and insurance companies, it doesn't surprise me that we continue to have low rates. We're going to continue to have low rates, which from my perspective gives me a, a foundation of belief that equities are going to be a great place to be. Questions from the audience? Dan? Good morning, Larry. Daniel Arbus from Perella. Uh, Daniel Arbus from Perella Weinberg Partners. Uh, your observations about uh, investors not achieving their return hurdles are, of course, uh, of great concern. We're in a global debt deleveraging where central banks are effectively practicing financial repression on all kinds of savers, pushing people into riskier assets. My question follows Maria's last question, which is the notion that you can get a higher return in equities is, is an interesting notion, but we all know that equities are much riskier as well. So the environment that we're in, characterized by a lot of contentiousness around austerity, taxation, et cetera, et cetera, is not really conducive to robust economic growth. Mm -hmm. At what point do you say equity valuations are, are going to be stretched so that there's as much risk as there is potential enhancement and return going into the asset class? So I would argue that uh, you know, equities, despite this rally, are unchanged in 10 years. We have P.E. ratios that are hovering around in the 12s. Um, you know, we, we, had all, we had the equity markets hovering around the 12s in 1982. We had 10-year... Ten Treasuries at nine and ten percent, and now we have ten-year treasuries at two percent. Um, I think we have a long ways to go to make equities look expensive, um, and I do believe um, our corporations are in unbelievable shape. Their balance sheets have never been stronger; certainly a lot stronger today than they were in 1980. Uh, certainly, uh, the, their ability to navigate with low interest rates really allows them to do things that they would never would have been able to do. Uh, and so at this time, looking at long-term valuations, I think, um, I think equities uh, are at a place to be. Now, that's my personal view. Um, and, um, you know, I believe you're paid to own equity, especially when you incorporate not only the P-E ratios, 
with the dividend returns that you're getting in equities. And that is always U.S. equities. Are you that's po- a, that's are you more poised to put money in the U.S. right now or outside the U.S.? I, I would say what I, what I personally like the most is buying multinational companies that are less dependent on one country. I like multinational companies. They may have 40 to 60 percent of their engines of growth um, uh, in the United States, but I do like the diversification of being more, more global. We've got a caller coming in, national member Ben Wolf from Self and Capital uh, in Santiago, Chile, right now, asking, you mentioned the success of the Chilean privatized pension fund system, which has not only provided an excellent retirement system, but has also contributed significantly to the development of mature and deep capital markets, which in turn fuel growth. Do you think there is any prospect that the U.S. or any other advanced economy adopts a similar system, either in whole or in part, in the medium term? I, ho- I hope so. I, I think, if, as we, I said earlier, if you look at Chile or Australia, um, they're going to have a, a pool of resources uh, to, uh, to provide the capital uh, to build infrastructure, to build, uh, to, to, to build these countries. Um, you know, when we tried to do that, I think three, four years ago, uh, they called it... Uh, uh, when, when I think Secretary Paulson was talking about the privatization of, of Social Security, that's basically what they were trying to do, uh, uh, creating a, a, a mechanism in which uh, in, in investors had choice. Um, in Australia, you have the superannuization funds in which you, I think you have uh, eight or nine options how to invest, um, and you choose how to invest, but it's, it's a government requirement for part-time and full-time to withhold 12% of their disposable income. Now, if we did this in this country, we'd go, we could go right into a recession, you know, and so there's, there has to be this balance of how much money uh, are you putting away and how much money are you, um, are, uh, are you using for consumption. So it's not an easy thing to go from a, a, a nation that uh, is probably only putting you know, six or seven percent away, which is inadequate right now, uh, where you really don't control it in the DB side. On the DC side, you have choice, but you know, as I said, in these other countries, you have fewer choices to go into different, you know, different structures that help the individuals. I've seen in Australia how it's been done. The individuals are actually see if you save this much money, here's what you're going to be having at the end of the, you know, when you retire. This how much money you could have at 65 or 68 or 70. And it, it, gives, it gives you a lot more clarity. It's just mapping it out, mapping yeah. out a plan. Yes, right there. I'm Susan Davis. I lead a nonprofit organization called BRAC, and I was intrigued by your um, perspective or call to arms for us to take a longer-term perspective, investing in infrastructure and education. And I wondered, um, is there, in looking at equities, um, what's your firm's perspective on impact investing? And in the context of this systemic failure, um, do you look at equities or companies, business as usual, or are you factoring in the climate change crisis, global poverty, the, 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 the tensions that are causing the Arab Spring and other, um, other factors? Um, yes. No. <laughs> <laughs> 
all these all these social issues are, are, are you know are, are very difficult to navigate. Depending on each individual company, you have to you have to pay attention to these issues. Um, there's no question that uh, we all have a responsibility. We have a responsibility to uh, our country. We have a responsibility to certainly our employees. We have a responsibility to our community, and to uh, and and. Navigating those issues um, um, are difficult. Um, the pressures of earnings um, um, is, is one that's very hard for a lot of companies. But getting back to me as an investor, or how we should, as BlackRock as an investor, in terms of how we look at these things, um, we look at impact investing, we look at social issues as a very important component, um, especially as we think about proxy voting. You know, we, we just sent out a letter on, under, my, uh, under my name to 600 companies uh, uh, worldwide about um, proxy season. And as a shareholder, we are taking a much more uh, interest in how companies uh, perform. Um, and... We believe it is our fiduciary responsibility to take an active view, especially in light of so much of our assets, our index money. We have to own these companies, whether we like them or not. Whether we think they're doing the right thing or not, we have to own them. And so, therefore, the only power we have is our vote. And we're spending a great time now, um, which I'm not involved in. I can't be involved in all. We have a special uh, committee that is involved in terms of making those decisions on, on, on issues that you, you brought up and how that impacts our voting. Uh, and, um, and what we wanted to do through this letter to tell all our companies that we invest our monies with, our clients' money with, that uh, our vote is going to be important and we are not going to allow our votes to be influenced by proxy voting services, which I do believe um, too many investors rely on proxy voting services and not spend enough time on taking their own responsibility of voting on behalf of their investors. So I, I don't have a, a, a straightforward answer, but I can tell you we are taking a pretty deliberate view on these so, social issues, and, uh, and we will express that uh, uh, one, one by one in the proxy voting season. And one of the priorities that you've been mentioning this morning is a return to growth, reigniting growth. But we walk such a balance in terms of reigniting growth and putting austerity in place, even in the United States. Yes. How worried are you about the $14 trillion debt in the United States? Should we be prioritizing cutting back, putting austerity in more so than we are, or is putting enough stimulus out there to reignite growth really the preferred priority? Well, that's the big debate today about how much more stimulus we need to re-engage this economy. Um, of course, we worry about the $14 trillion of debt, and the, and, and the debt's growing a trillion plus this, this coming year and probably another trillion dollars next year. So we have not, you know, despite all this noise, we have not addressed our deficits at all as a country. Um, we, we, you know, there's, there's been very little in terms of bipartisanship in terms of navigating these deficits, uh, and that's going to be a priority for 2013. Can the U.S. turn into Italy? 
No, because Italy actually has more savings than us. <laughs> but I mean, you're talking about 120% debt to GDP. I mean, everybody's yeah. trying to make a But they actually have so much savings there that, you know, the difference between, you know, the difference between Italy and the United States, 80 or 90%, I don't know the exact statistic, but a high percentage of Italian government debt is held by Italians. Uh, we don't have that problem. We have, as I said, we have Japanese and Chinese and a lot of foreigners owning our debt. Uh, and so, um, you know, we have we have a problem. As I said, it's not a train wreck problem. It's not something happening now. It's a problem that you could actually, you know, f look out and if we don't address this in the next few years, it's going to be a hole that's going to be very hard to navigate. Jacob Frankel. Thank you. Thank you, Jacob Frankel, J.P. Morgan. You described the global deleveraging by, as, the major, as one of the major dangers that we have. And indeed, the uh, governments all over the world have tried to mitigate the consequence of the global deleverage of the private sector by creating excess leverage of their own books, and that's the budget deficits and the debt. And central banks have expanded their balance sheet in an unreasonable way. So question number one, is it obvious that excess leverage of the public sector <coughs> is better than the excess leverage of the private sector which it is supposed to replace? And the second question related to it is, given the extraordinary low interest rate which you spoke as a challenge to private investor, is there also a big challenge to the macroeconomy of negative real rates? Do we plant the seeds of the bubbles and the next inflation? Um, I don't see any, let me go from the back first, Jacob. I don't see any risk of inflation for the next few years uh, until we start seeing some real growth in employment in Europe and the United States and a more stable growing economies. I don't think we're going to have that much uh, inflation. Now, we may have spikes inflation if there's any crisis in the Middle East related to oil and things like that. But I'm not, and I do believe our central banks have time to navigate um, a change of policy if there was any whiff of, of employment which would translate into an increase in uh, in, in, in inflation. So I don't see an inflation bubble in the next one or two, three years. I think there is time for that. Um, one can argue if we had proper regulation, having the leverage in the private sector is probably more sensible uh, because um, we have shareholders who attack it every moment, uh, whereby it's very hard to ta attack government and so one can argue having um, this increase in, in, uh, in deficits in the public sector um, uh, is, is more difficult to navigate outwardly. On the other hand, there is a role of the public sector to, to try to stimulate economies um, and, uh, and to try to create an environment where our economies can grow. So I believe it's a balancing between the public sector and the private sector. Now, obviously, you're correct in saying 
Um, all the growth in the deficits uh, uh, are in the public sector, um, whether it is in the balance sheets of a government or in their Federal Reserves uh, or central banks. Um, I, I do believe there is, we have time to navigate those risks if it's done sensibly. Um, but I do believe we need to really make sure that we are, that we have a system in which we don't have crises like we did, had in 2008 and 2009. Um, but I don't think we understand the cost of those, of, of, of those mechanisms. And so I do believe we're all going to have to be living in a future with a more regulated uh, uh, approach. And if we don't develop our capital markets, not just here in the United States, but if Asia doesn't develop their capital markets, their problems will be just as severe as our problems in the future. We want to uh, have one more question I, all the way in the back, right over there. We want to keep everybody on time, so uh, briefly, one, actually it was the person in the back. Sorry, very back. Um, sorry. Um, I'm Rob Dietrich from Bloomberg Markets Magazine. I, I just want, earlier you said you made a direct connection between the current crisis of confidence or lack of confidence um, and our inability to make long-term decisions. Uh, and sort of long-term thinking, I believe you were saying. But I wanted to sort of challenge that or ask what the connection you're making is, because if you look back to, say, circa 2007, when I think we probably arguably had an excess of confidence in the system, um, I don't think we were making long-term investments or long-term decisions at that point either. So, so what's the connection you're trying to make between the current crisis of confidence and our inabilities or our problems right now to make long-term thinking? Well, I, I, I think uh, in 2007, we had certainly uh, over, we had, uh, we had confidence that was obviously, as you said, way over, over, over our skis. Uh, we, we believed that leverage is not a pernicious uh, problem in society. So that that overconfidence was 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 that we believed a, you know, a couple dozen men and women could navigate credit risk in thirty and forty to one leverage. Um, unfortunately, they were wrong, and regulators were there too. So it's not like and shareholders were there too. I mean, nothing was not. Let me restate it. Reporters were there too. So. <laughs> <laughs> We were all guilty of overconfident that we could navigate that type of risk. But I think it's the backlash, the other side of that problem, is the, is the cause of the lack of confidence today. I think, you know, we could look back today and say, how on earth did we ever think a firm can navigate 30 or 40 or 50 to one leverage? And we have regulators saying, how on earth have we, did we not, you know, protect society better? Um, and so we, we are, we've moved the pendulum way too far the other way. Um, and I think now in an era of low interest rates to navigate uh, you know, our, our way out of this problem. Hopefully, 
um, through low interest rates, we do stabilize our situation. But most importantly, I think we haven't changed your behavior. Because of the fears of the precipice of the results of 08 and 09, I think people are just standing there, mostly uninvestment, sitting in too, too large of low-yielding instruments, and they're not addressing their longer-term issue, and that is, what do I do with my money? How do I prepare for my future? The same way I prepare for my, my health future. I, there's just too much commentary maybe not enough on your health, but there's no commentary about how to have a standard of living that meets your future needs. It's a new world, and our clients are looking for answers. Will I be able to retire? Am I going to outlive my savings? Will I be able to fund my kids' education? Are we headed for another global financial meltdown? How worried should I be about Europe, about China? Is my pension secure? Will my kids be worse off than me? The one question on everyone's minds is, so what do I do with my money? Welcome to the new world. Welcome this was her machine, machine, 53. Welcome to the new world. Today with how one could think the world or what one LED brought to the world. The machine 53 with Lawrence Fink, BlackRock, and a lot of employees, inhabitants of energy, and some comedy. By Adam Curtis. Her machine is 53. Almost two years. Four years. Four and a half years. Six and a half years. Eight years. Ten years. Twelve years. Seventeen. Almost eighteen years. For nineteen years. Twenty-three years. I have been in black box for twenty-four years. In the new world, we must spend more time with our clients than we've ever done. We should be positively paranoid about risk, so our clients don't have to be. In the new world, responsibility to our clients is our only business. In the new world, we need emotional ownership in the success of our clients. Our interconnectedness brings us closer to our clients. Closer to our clients.